Okay, so we're just a few days <coughs> away from Purim, Yemei HaPurim, <coughs> and uh, thought it was appropriate to dedicate the discussion this week to uh, matters of Purim. And uh, also just to mention at the outset that uh, this time next week will be <coughs> Purim for most people, uh, for the uh, Purazim, Hayoshvim Bari HaPurazos, uh, and therefore we won't be having a shear Next week, we'll pick up again, Mitz Hashem, in two weeks' time, where regardless of which day of Purim you celebrate, hopefully we will all have recovered by then. So, uh, I wanted to um, open the discussion by referring to what you could say is at the core of the characterization of Purim. The Megillah itself refers to the days of Purim as Yemei Mishtevesimcha, days of feasting and rejoicing. And whenever we have uh, an issue of Seuda, shall we say, a festive meal and joy, it's worthwhile contemplating how to place the Su'uda of Purim. Where exactly does it fit in? And the reason why it's important to ask this question is because <coughs> we're normally, we normally associate the mitzvah of having a Su'uda, a festive meal, with a festival. That is to say, with a Yom Tov, either Shabbos or Yom Tov. But as we know, uh, Purim is not a Yom Tov. Uh, certainly not in the sense of uh, the other Yom Tovim that we know. You can call it a Chag. Uh, as a convenience of expression, but it certainly doesn't have Kedushas Yom Tov. If we would compare it, for example, with uh, the, the sister festival of Hanukkah, right? there is no mitzvah of Su'uda on Hanukkah, on a straightforward level. We call them Chagim, but they're not Yomim Tovim. So if it's not a Yom Tov in the pure sense of the word, where does this Su'uda come from, which is one of the central institutions of Purim? One could say that the Su'uda is very simply to celebrate the miracle of our salvation. But here too, we go back to Hanukkah, where also great miracles were performed for us, and yet they, the commemoration takes place through the lighting of the menorah. So here too, we commemorate the miracle of Purim by literally reading the whole Megillah, which means <coughs> we have... Uh, remembered the miracle and appreciated it and recalled it and still there remains uh, an element of the day which is reserved for the Su'uda. And what is it all about? The Vilna Gaon places the concept of the Su'uda of Purim within a framework which will give us, I believe, a completely new picture uh, of all the aspects of the day of Purim and all the aspects of what it is coming to celebrate. He begins by referring us to an expression that we meet frequently in the Megillah when we describe Haman's plans. It's almost like a catchphrase. Lahashmid, laharog, ulaabed, those three things to, to 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 annihilate, to kill, to destroy. And it's followed up with the words Ushlalam Lavos, and all of their money or possessions will be looted. Those are the, that's the four 
expressions, shall we say, if we could use that term, the Arba Lishonos of Haman's uh, plans for the Jewish people, Lashmid, Larogula Abed, and Ushlalam Lavos, and uh, evidence of just how significant and central this term is that even in the Alanisim, and, and as we know, the Alanisim on Purim is one short paragraph, and we miss out many, many details. We really just get to the core of the, te- the telling of the miracle, but we make full reference to that plan with all of its aspects, Lashmid, Larok, Ulabed, Ushilalam, Lavos. But what's it all about? It seems like uh, the first three things seem like the, the three ways of saying the same thing. Lashmid, Larok, Ulabed. I mean, they each sounds worse than the other, but they don't sound different from each other. But in truth, <coughs> says the Vilna Gaon, Haman's plans for the Jewish people indeed comprised four compartments, four elements. Because a person himself is comprised of four things, or comprises four things, and he lists them. This is the Vilna Gaon in his commentary to Michaelas Esther. Number one, says the Gaon, is his physical existence, his physical uh, body. Number two, his life. The difference between someone who's alive and dead, that, that, that element which we call nefesh, his life, his life force. Number three, says the Gon, <coughs> his spirituality, his neshama. And the neshama is uh, quite different, in a sense, than the life force. Even an animal, the has, has a life force. A live animal has a nefesh. But a, but a person has, has higher faculties. And finally, number four, his possessions. Possessions are also part of the person. And these are the four things that make up the totality of the person. Once again, his physical body, his life force, his spiritual soul, and his belongings, his possessions. Haman's plans for the Jewish people were to destroy all four of these. That's why his uh, plotting is mentioned with these four phrases, la shmid, la rog, ula abed, ushlalam lavos. How so? <coughs> la shmid, and the concept of shmad, as we know, refers to spiritual destruction. He is looking, with the disappearance of the Jewish people, the spiritual message that they carry and their spiritual pursuits will likewise disappear. And that's part of what Haman wants to disappear. That's la shmid, to remove the neshama. Then, laharog, to kill, kipshuto, is to, is to remove the nefesh, to, to remove their life. But then comes la'abed, and the Vilna Gon only has to say uh, his understanding of what la'abed means, and you'll see the roots of, of Amalek. La'abed, says the Vilna Gon, means even once the people had been killed, their bodies should not remain. To absolutely eradicate any physical trace of their existence in all of its manifestations. He doesn't elaborate in his commentary on Megillus Esther, but he does elsewhere in his Perush Aderes Elio to Sefer Devarim, where he talks about Haman again and he states, and whether he's explaining uh, history or foreshadowing, Le'abed means to reduce them to ashes. 
that there will be absolutely nothing left. <coughs> and what about Shlalam Lavos? Shlalam Lavos, that their property <coughs> will be then looted so that there shouldn't remain even something that was known as Jewish-owned. In other words, all of their property should be absorbed into uh, Amoliks, uh, coffers, so that no item will remain in existence that people will say that was owned by a Jew. That's Ushlalam Lavos. So this is an absolutely terrifying uh, plan. And again, where, 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 he, where he did not uh, succeed at all, uh, his, his descendants uh, made inroads. But, it, but fundamentally, the Jewish people were saved at that time. And now we understand why the celebration on Purim is actually fourfold. Because each mitzvah of Purim corresponds to an area where Haman was not successful in his plans to absolutely annihilate the Jewish people. And what are the four mitzvahs of Purim? Well, we have Megillah reading. We have Mishta, as we said, the, the Su'uda. We have Simcha, which is rejoicing. And we have gifts, both in the form of Mishlach Manos and Matanes Le'evyonim. Says the Vilna Gaon, when you think about it, it is these four that are really a celebration of one of the aspects of the Jewish people that Haman was not able to, to destroy. Beginning with Megillah reading. Here is Haman, and the, the great irony of Haman is that he wants, to just, he wants to eradicate the Torah's message, and he was thereby instrumental in adding another book to the Tanakh, because it's, he's part of the story. Uh, I don't know if it's a source of great nachas for him, but uh, it happens to be true. And therefore, the Megillah reading corresponding to Lehashmid, and Lehashmid means to spiritually remove the, the Jewish people, here they are, another Sefer, and we read the, the, the Megillah in the night and in the day. What about the physical element, to remove their physical bodies, which was, which was part of his plan, as we said, La'abed? Well, says the Gon, to that end we have a mitzvah of Mishter. The mitzvah of the Su'uda, we see how, how unique this Su'uda of Purim is. Normally, on Shabbos and Yom Tev, there's a Su'uda to mark the sanctity of the day. Says the Vilna Gaon, the Su'uda on Purim is to publicize that the physical bodies of the Jewish people are still here. And in fact, by the end of the Su'uda, they are more here. It is an, a, a, an investment and a, 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 a celebration of the physical existence of the Jewish people. That's what the Mishnah is. And what about Simcha? So we put Mishnah with Simcha together, but the Gon says, no, Mishnah represents physical existence. But what is Simcha? Simcha is life. <coughs> the Nitziv elaborates on this idea in a number of places. When we think about the... the um, the opposite of death, we say, is life. But there are grades, and the happier a person is, the more alive they are. And therefore, the joy on Purim is publicizing that the Jewish people, shall we say, re reports of their annihilation have been greatly exaggerated. 
because <coughs> here they are, not only are they alive, alive and happy. Happiness is the nth degree removed from the, from the fate that uh, Haman had. So, so in other words, the simcha, again, all of these are ways of publicizing the miracle. And finally, what about uh, his, his designs to dissolve and disintegrate the concept of Jewish-owned possessions? There are mitzvahs on Purim which uh, involve and are focused around Jewish-owned possessions. And what do we do with them? The most Jewish thing you can with them. We gift to those in need. We spread things around. Mishloach manos, matonos le'evyonim. And so you have literally four for four. It's a whole framework now that the Vilna Gaon has given us to see each mitzvah of the day. It's all persumenissa. It's all persumenissa. Every happy Jew on the day of Purim is publicizing a miracle. He's like, I would say he's like a walking menorah. In fact, that may explain why uh, some people at a certain point in the Suda they actually start to glow. Maybe that's why. Either way. So this, I think, <coughs> is a, a truly profound uh, way of approaching the, the mishta and simcha which lie at the core of, uh, of the celebrations of Purim. Fourfold pursuing Nissa for the fourfold uh, frustration of Haman's plans. And indeed, there are halachic ramifications <coughs> for this understanding of simcha. There's an interesting question which is raised in the poskim. Is it mutter to get married on Purim? Uh, it could be that for some it's the only day that they'd say yes. But normally on Yom Tov, uh, we know that you can't get married on Yom Tov. Not Yom Tov, not Cholamoed. But why not? Because there's a concept of Ein Ma'arvin Simcha Besimcha. We don't like to... to simcha shouldn't get in each other's... Each, each thing to, de, deserves its space. So the simcha of Yom Tov is its own enterprise, and the simcha of getting married is its own enterprise, and the two shouldn't start stepping on each other's toes, and therefore we keep them distinct. That's with regards to Yom Tov. However, with regards to Purim, there are poskim <coughs> who say that it is mutter to get married on Purim. Again, uh, whether a person would actually choose to do this is another question. They run the risk of uh, many more than one glasses uh, ending up being uh, uh, smashed at some stage. But nevertheless, the Orzarua, quoted by the Ramah, says it's mutter. But why is it mutter? If we hear this nuanced point, why, is it, why would it be mutter to get married on Purim, why would we not invoke the principle of Ein Ma'arvin Simcha Besimcha, that one shouldn't mesh the joys? But Mepharshim explained, <coughs> once we understand that this, the, the Simcha of Purim isn't about anything in particular, whatever a person is happy about is the fulfillment of being happy on Purim. So if he's happy because he got married, so be it. There, there, isn't, there isn't a focus that would then be in conflict with a counter-focus. The, the simcha is, is, is its own concept, and whatever brings a person to that state is completely acceptable, uh, and, and hence, it's a good thing to know, uh, if, if case one is ever asked, it is actually mutter, according to those poskim, to get married on Purim. So, from here, I'd like to turn our attention to what I believe is a core theme that will take us through, through the Megillah and through... <coughs> And, through, and, and back to Purim itself. 
And we begin by referring to a very interesting medrash. Of course, we're, not only are we in the days before Purim, we're also in the few days before Shabbos Zohar. And Amalek is very much, uh, it's a historic um, and historical confrontation. The Megillah was one central chapter in that confrontation. It was not the first and it was not the last. And the first begins with, uh, with Vayavo Amalek. And our first battle with Amalek, so who is it that fended them off? It was Yehoshua, was chosen by Moshe. And the Medrash elaborates, it's a Medrash Mos Rabbah. And the Medrash says, Omar lo, Moshe says to Yehoshua, Ziknecha Omar, your grandfather, meaning your ancestor said, Esa elokim Your ancestor declared himself to be a God-fearing person. Who is this? It's Yosef. <coughs> In Parshas Miketz, Yosef says to the brothers, they don't know it's Yosef, but he says, So your grandfather has proclaimed himself a God-fearing man. Uksiv, and with regards to Amalek, we know it says, They are the antithesis of fear of God. So that a descendant of someone who proclaimed himself a God-fearing man come viyipara and exact retribution from someone about whom it is said that they were fundamentally not God-fearing. Thus far from the Medrash. So if we could summarize what the Medrash says, why was Yoshua chosen? Because Yoshua is descended from Yosef. Yosef's a God-fearing person. Amalek is not God-fearing. He's the type of person that you need to take care of. There is a very basic question that one could ask on this Medrash. Is Yosef the only person that we know who is uh, referred to as a God-fearing person? If we go through Chumash Barashas, we will find that there's someone else, Avram Avinu, at the Akeda, when the angel tells him to stop, ki atoyadati, ki yurei elokim ato. The angel says to Avram, I know that you're a God-fearing person. Having established that, let us go back to the Amalek situation. And in order to find the right man for the job, you need someone who's descended from a God-fearing person. Well, now you're actually surrounded by them. You couldn't actually choose someone not descended from a God-fearing person because if they're Jewish, they're descended from Avram Avinu. So why is it not enough to be descended from Avram Avinu, who's called a Yireel Kim by an angel? And one needs to be descended from Yosef specifically, who proclaimed himself a Yireel Kim. I mean, one could say it's a double layer, but is there a qualitative difference or emphasis, difference in emphasis between those two? That's an interesting question. Let's put that to the side just for a moment <coughs> and come to the uh, Megillah. And specifically at the point, Perik Dalet, where Mordechai, he knows, the Pasuk says he knows about Haman, he starts to raise a fuss, he starts to wail, and uh, he comes to Esther, and he comes to, to the palace gates, he can't go any further, Bilavushsak. And Esther is very alarmed, she hears that Mordechai is uh, causing all sorts of uh, uh, upset. <coughs> And she sends a message or messengers to, to Mordechai. Ladas maze 
ve'almaze. Those are the words, well-known words of the Megillah, right? Vatishlach lavester ladas maze ve'almaze. Now, as we can appreciate, those words seem to be quite repetitive. What does Esther want to know? Maze, what's happening? Ve'almaze, and what's it about? What's, what is this and what's it about is the same thing. It is what it's about. So it seems to be a double-barreled reference in this question. It could have just said, Ladas Mazer, what's happening? Or Ladas Al Mazer. But it's Mazer Ve'al Mazer. It's a kind of, a, it's, a, it's a rambling uh, expression. And that's why the Medrash focuses on these words and says a, a fascinating thing. On the words Al-Mazeh, that extra phrase, the Medrash says that Esther asks Mordechai, the Jewish people are clearly in trouble. Why are they in trouble? Perhaps they've abandoned the Luchos. Perhaps they've abandoned the, the Ten Commandments. What's that got to do with Al-Mazeh? Because the Luchos, as we know, were written on both sides. In the words of the Pasuk, it's in next week's Parsha, Mizeh umizeh. They're written Mizer from this side and written Mizer from this side. So what Esther is saying, as per the Medrash, is Al-Mazer. Is it over the fact that they've abandoned the Luchos, which were written Mizer or Mizer on both sides? That's Esther's question. Now, what does Mordechai answer her? If you look in the Megillah, his answer is, Vayaged la Mordechai eskol asher Karahu. Mordechai told her everything that happened to him. As we know, the word karahu is a highly charged word in terms of us and Amalek. Because Amalek is always, they happen. As we will read in, in Maftir, in Zohar this week, Asher karcha baderach, they happened upon you. And therefore when Mordechai says, kol asher karahu, everything that happened, says the Medrash, she's saying, karahu's back. Karahu is back. In the same way as Shekarach That's that, in other words, Am- Amalek is here. And that's the Medrash. So this Medrash, again, is very interesting for, for a number of reasons. Firstly, let's go back to Esther's, again, we, we keep track of, uh, of what the Medrash is saying. Esther asks, Va'almazeh. Is it because they've abandoned the Luchos? And how are the Luchos represented by the word because they were written from one side and the other side. Of all the ways to refer to the, to the Ten Commandments, this seems to be a detail that is not key in our situation. As if to say, uh, the fact that the, there's a hundred things are true of the Luchos, so and one of them is they were written on both sides. But how does that become a key defining point? in this situation. That's really what, what we need to ask. The words of the Medrash need to be considered very carefully. We don't just pick up on a side issue. Apparently this is of the essence. But how is the fact that they're written on both sides of the essence? Especially as when the Torah forbids something, if they somehow violated what the Torah forbids, it's forbidden even if it's not written on both sides. And you, you, you have to imagine someone who, you know, the Torah forbids that you're not allowed to, to eat certain non-kosher foods. Imagine who eats those foods and in his defense says, well, you know, I read the Torah and that, yes, true, it says that you can't have those foods. But then I turned it over and the other side, it didn't say anything, so I thought it was permitted. 
I mean, it's, that's, not, that's not a great defense. One side is enough. <clears throat> and the second question is, it's very interesting that Esther has an illusion and Mordechai's answer has an illusion. They seem to have nothing at all to do with each other. They seem to be like these, these illusions that are just passing each other. Ships that pass in the night. She's involved in her symbology. He's invested in his symbology. But they don't seem to be talking to each other. In other words, Esther is saying, Mazeh, the luchos, you know, on this side and that side. And Mordechai said, I know, Karahu, Amalek. And these are amazing conversations, but they don't seem to be part of the same conversation. How is one a response to the other? Each one is its own dissertation. It's what you could call the sound of clashing symbols. Karahu, Mazeh, what's it all about? That we now ask, what's it all about? What is it and what's it all about? <clears throat> I believe that the, the key to this matter lies in what you could call the Maase Avos for the Purim story. We know often Maase Avos Simon Laboni. And uh, what about the Purim story? Right? The, the, uh, the pre-experiences of the fathers enable the experiences of the descendants. What about the Purim story? <clears throat> we find what you could call Maase Avos for Purim in the story of Yosef, actually, in a, a certain, more correctly, a certain episode in the story of Yosef, when he's finally reunited with the brothers, so the Pasuk tells us, this is in Parshas Vayigash, Lechulam nasan somalos. He gave each of them a new set of clothes, right? They torn their clothing when they thought that uh, this was it. He gave each of them a new set of clothes, and to Binyamin he, gave, he gives five new sets of clothes. Ulu Binyamin nasan First of all, Shloshmiyos Kesev and Chamesh Chalifos Somalos. The Gemara is absolutely uh, traumatized by this. How can you be giving Binyamin more than the others? Isn't, have they not just recovered <coughs> from Yosef having been given preferential treatment by his father? That's 22 years in, in the making. You literally just recovered and Yosef proceeds to do exactly the same thing. He gives every them, all of them one and to Binyamin he gives five. A very interesting Shiloh to which the Gemara gives an equally interesting answer. And that is that in giving Binyamin these clothes, he is alluding to him, Remez Ramazlo, that in the future one of his descendants would also emerge from the royal palace with five royal garments. And that is Mordechai. Mordechai is descended from Binyamin, Ishyumini. And as we know, Mordechai Yatsam, Melech, and it lists five things, etc., those four. And we can see, by the way, the centrality of that verse. It's otherwise, it's almost inexplicable. It's one of the four verses that everyone in Shul says together. Even though it doesn't seem to be that important, as if to say, the next verse, Okay, that's an, that's an out loud congregational uh, verse, or, or, and so on and so forth, or the final verse in the Megillah. But this one verse which says, and he was wearing this clothing and that clothing, and, and uh, that's, that, that deserves to make it into the, to those four verses? It doesn't seem to be so significant. But it is, because this is now catching, in a sense, what you could call the Masa Avos, 
Well, the whole thing was given to him in the, in the form of those uh, five clothing given to Binyamin, all those generations, indeed centuries beforehand. And thus we have the, uh, we've identified, I think, the Masa Avos for the Purim story in Binyamin leaves the palace with five uh, royal clothing, Mordechai later on signifying the triumph of the Jewish people. I think it's in place to say that when we look at this Gemara, it's a, it's a Gemara in Maseches Megillah, Daf Tetzayin, we should pay attention, be mindful, not only of who received those clothes all those years ago, i.e. Binyamin, but also who gave them those clothes, Yosef. Because in the Purim story itself, not only will Binyamin receive the clothes again in the form of Mordechai, his descendant, but Yosef will give them again. And that is something that I would like to elaborate upon a little bit, because Yosef, I believe it is fair to say, is the man behind the Purim story. And I'll explain what I mean. <laughs> the truth is, uh, there's an interesting idea, more than interesting, that once you hear it in one place, you hear it everywhere. And you, and you begin to see it all over the place. And that is that the story of the Megillah has many, many parallels with the story of Yosef. It almost seems to be the story of Yosef again. This is true with regards to uh, beginning with component parts of the story or things that happen in the story, signature moments, shall we say. Uh, for example, <clears throat> you have uh, both stories involve someone being promoted to the status of Mishnah Lamelech. Okay, Yosef, that's right, the tzaddik, it, it, it becomes. Mishnah Lamelech to Paro, Mordechai, Haman, and then later, well, no, Mordechai becomes uh, the Mishnah Lamelech. That's how the Megillah ends. Ki Mordechai Hayudin, Mishnah Lamelech HaChashverosh. So they both have Mishnah Lamelech. They both have moments where the king removes his ring and gives it to someone else, signifying you now have the authority to, to act in my name. Paro does that to Yosef. And Achashverosh does that, first to Haman, then to Mordechai. Removal of the ring, transferal of the ring. In both of these stories, <coughs> the king makes a feast for all of his servants. That's how Megillah Esther begins, that seven-day feast in Shushan. And also, Parshas Vayeshev, Yom Huledes says Paro, and Paro at the end, when it's his birthday, Asa Mishtel Lechol Avadav. He makes a party for all of his servants. In both cases, we find that tzaddik or tzaddikuses, they charm everyone that they come into contact with. Vati Esther no kol right? She found favor in everyone's eyes, grace in everyone's eyes. Yosef also, right? Vati Yosef More closer to the to, to the core of the uh, of the story. You find in both of these stories that Sadik he does a kindness for someone. He performs a service for someone. And we expect that that would be rewarded straight away. But it isn't. It gets forgotten. It gets pushed to the side. 
and it comes back at a later and much more fortuitous time. Uh, where do we see that? Yosef's interpretation of the, the butler's dream. And he says, will you remember me in three days? No. And in fact, had he been remembered three days later, he would have just gone free and he wouldn't have been where he needed to be two years later when Paro needed him and he would get propelled to become the Mishnah Lamelech. So it was forgotten at its time. It comes back at a much more fortuitous time. And he, becomes, uh, he, he rises to stardom based on it. And the same is true for, for Mordechai. Mordechai does a service for the king. He uncovers the plot of Bigtan and Teresh, and it's forgotten. And it comes back at exactly the right moment with Kachi Yasele Ish, etc. Both of them also, interestingly, are paraded through the streets with people calling things, proclaiming things in front of them. Yosef is, is ridden through the streets and they, they say, Avreich, everyone needs to bow down to him. Mordechai is led through the streets. Haman says, Kachi Yasele Melech, Kachi Yasele Ish, Asher Melech Hafez Bikaro. In both stories, the king's sleep is used as a vehicle to, to promote the situation for the, for the, for the tzaddik. Right? For Paro, he has these dreams that disturb his sleep. For Ahasuerus, he can't sleep at all. Each one is, is being uh, maneuvered for what will then uh, pr- propel the tzaddik to, to where he needs to be. And also, of course, Megillas Esther, in both of these uh, stories, the... The identity of the tzaddik or the tzaddikas is, is concealed until the opportune time, right? Yosef conceals identity from his brothers. Uh, Esther conceals her identity from Achashverosh, right? More and more, so many fixtures and aspects and elements you really see uh, resonating between these two stories. And moreover, it's not only component parts of the stories. If you look at the text of the Megillah. If you're familiar with the, with the, the, the relevant parshas in Yosef, you see that there are words and phrases and word groupings which are, which are parallel in these two stories. For example, um, Yosef is being pressured every day by Potiphar's wife to, to uh, give in to her and he doesn't listen. How is that expressed in the Pasuk in Parshas Vayeshev? Vayihi kadabra el Yosef yom yom velo shama elaha. Right? She told Yosef day in, day out, he didn't listen to her. What happens in Megillah's Esther? Mordechai is not bowing down to Haman. People are telling him every day, you've got to do it. He doesn't listen. What does the Pasuk say in Megillah Perikimel? Vayihi kaamram elav yom vayom velo shama alehem. It's absolutely the same topography as the uh, as as the the Yosef situation um, in different contexts, <coughs> but the phraseology is is a match. You find, for example, the king is advised in both places to to set up executive officers to gather things in. Well, what what are they meant to gather things in? It depends. In the story of the Megillah, it's to gather in the girls for Achashverosh's uh, culturally sensitive uh, beauty contest. In the story of Yosef, it's to gather in all the, all the food that, that will be in the years of plenty. And how is that expressed? Well, in Parshas Miketz, Yosef says, Set up officers. Let them bring in. It's called Ochel What the Achashverosh's uh, advisors tell him in Megillah 
in Esther Perik Beis, V'yafkeid ha-melech pekidim, V'yikbetsu, it's called Nara Basula, right? It's the, it's, it's the same, it's the same thing. In both stories, and these will be just the last couple of examples, but they're, they're, they're a few of many, ten l'chacham, b'yach kamot, but they, they, but they really, I think, uh, illustrate this point. In both stories, you have, in a sense, that the tzaddik is about to do something. The tzaddik or tzaddikas is about to do something. And they kind of, they, they end up by saying, whatever happens, happened. Whatever I lose, I lose. Right? That's what um, Yaakov says. <clears throat> he doesn't want to send Binyamin down. But in the end, he has no choice. So he sends him down. And what are the last words he says before he sends him down? Whatever I will lose, I will lose. If it happens, it happens. And Esther says exactly the same thing. Just before, when Mordechai says, you have to go to Achashverosh, she says, okay, tell them to fast, and here I go. That's exactly the same. And finally, the word Vayis Apak, Vayis Apak means he controlled himself, is a key word in both of these stories. Yosef, who has to exert control when he doesn't want to reveal his identity to the brothers, right? Vayis Apak, he gets himself under control. And what about who do we find in the Purim story? Haman, Vayis Apak Haman. The word Vayisapak appears only twice in all of Tanakh. In Parshas uh, Miketz with Yosef and the Megillas Esther. That's what's called the Simon Mufak. That's a lock. And all of this beckons us to ponder the question, how are these two, why are these two stories the same? What is the, what is the core theme where one is a, a reiteration of the other, another chapter of the other, or if we could borrow uh, Esther's words, Mazeva al Mazeh. What what's it all about? All of this is discussed in one of the classic Sifrei Hadrush, the Sefer Afika Yehuda, Rav Yehuda Edel of Slonim, and he begins by drawing our attention to the fact that the Torah, whenever it speaks about Amalek. It always emphasizes that they attacked us baderech. When we were baderech, uh, again, that's going to be in Maftir this week because Zachor says Asher Karcha baderech. They happened upon you when you were on the derech. So too the Haftorah, which is the whole another chapter of our confrontation in the time of King Shaul. And how does it begin? Hashem sends a message to Shaul through Shmuel. Tell Shaul, Pakadati, I remember what Amalek did. Asher sam lo baderech. They put upon you what they said upon you while you were on the derech, while you were on the way in transit. <coughs> Why is this, in a sense, a, a motif term in terms of our relationship with Amalek? Now, one could answer very simply, and it's certainly true, that it comes to highlight the evil within Amalek, as if to say we weren't threatening anyone, we weren't, it's not a territorial war, we're not, we're not anywhere, we're just a baderech, and still they, they, they attacked us. So it comes to highlight 
uh, in a sense, just their nefarious uh, motives. And but the Afika Yehuda says that there's there's more to it than that. It's important for us to realize that uh, Amalek and later on Haman, when we talk about the idea that they that they are kofrim, we say and they, they they deny. What do they deny? They deny Hashem's interference. They don't like the idea of Hashem interfering in the world. But the notion that there are spiritual forces at play in the world was known to, to people, whether they want to use them for good or for bad. This is lost on us a little bit. <coughs> and in a sense, the magnitude of the miracle of Purim is lost on us to, to this degree. Because we don't fully appreciate that the lottery that Haman um, cast, or perhaps he, the Pasuk doesn't even say that Haman cast the lottery. Someone else did in front of him. That's what it says. He pilled Puragoral Lifnei Haman. It's not a question of picking a, a date out of the hat. It's a question of working out in terms of the spiritual flow of the world, what's called mazolos, the word mazo from the word nozel, right, how, how spiritual energy flows into the world. What is the darkest day for the Jewish people? What's the best day for Amalek? And the answer was the 13th of Adar. And the festival of, of Purim gets its name after that lottery because the nafachu, the whole, the nature of the day was reversed. And so too with regards to locations. Every, um, every nation has its, has its location and it has its uh, spiritual overseer, what are called the sarim. And, Haman, and Amalek sees that the Jewish people are headed towards the land of Israel, where clearly that's their place. And if that's their place, then their, their spiritual power will be waiting for them there. And until further notice, they're nowhere. If they're baderech, if they're off location, if they're nowhere, there will be no one for them. Because that's how the world works. Lahavdil, in, in the way that we're familiar with uh, how electricity works and uh, radio waves and etc. and so forth, which are, so, so these were concepts that are known. And that's why it's emphasized. Because, because the kfira of Amalek says that the Jewish people are no different than any other people. And like any other people, they've got their place and they've got their spiritual power working for them in that place. But if they're nowhere, no one will be there for them. We need to catch them now. And that's why the concept of baderech is emphasized so much. Now the question is, is Haman right? So obviously the answer is no, but why is he wrong? And this is now a very sensitive point. Because the truth is that the land of Israel is the place of the Jewish people. But unlike other nations, their, our relationship with Hashem, chas v'chalila, isn't off when we're off location. In other words, where we need to be ultimately is the land of Israel. You cannot compare the relationship between Hashem and the Jewish people in the land of Israel and in Chutz Laaretz. But as much as you can't compare it, it's not a binary thing. It's not yes and no. It's not yes in the land of Israel and no outside the land of Israel. Chas Rather, it's yes with a capital Y and many exclamation points in the land of Israel. And yes with a lowercase y and perhaps a, 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 a comma at the end in, in Chutz Laaretz. But it's not a no. And that's extremely significant 
because in order for the Jewish people to merit Hashem's protection off location, they need to subscribe to the idea that they are connected to Him fundamentally in all locations. That they're never away in the sense that they're not Jewish anymore or they don't have to keep mitzvahs anymore or that Hashem isn't interested in them anymore. And with this in mind, we come back to Yehoshua, who was chosen as the one to fend off Amalek. And why Yehoshua? We remind ourselves, the Medrash says, says Moshe to Yehoshua, you're descended from Yosef. Yosef is Yireh Elohim. We need someone like you. These people are not Yireh Elohim. So you're the perfect man for the job. Our question was, well, everyone's this. They're all descended from Yireh Elohim. Avram is Yireh Elohim. So why do you need specifically someone descended from Yosef? It says, Afika Yehuda, Avram is called Yireh Elohim. And there's no doubting that wherever he is, he's Yireh Elohim. But where was he when that, when that was said? He's on Hara Maria. Hara Maria is about as, as Israel as it gets. It is absolutely in the, the, it is the center of Israel, spiritually. So whereas there's, we're not implying that that uh, Avram would not be uh, Yireh Elohim elsewhere, but it's not being highlighted. But it is in Yosef's case, because Yosef was in Egypt when he says, Now Egypt is not Israel. And Yosef says, I know that. But you know what? I'm still a Yireh Elohim. Because you have to be a Yireh Elohim wherever you are. And that's why it's specifically a descendant of Yosef that has to battle Amalek. Because Amalek says, if you're not in your location, so you're not connected to your, to your spiritual force. You need a descendant of Yosef who says, we're always connected, wherever we are. And with that, you combat Amalek. With this in mind, we, come, we fast forward, I would say, roughly a thousand years, a bit less. And we see the Jewish people, and they're, they're, they've, they've let themselves go. Jewish-wise, the Zachashverish's feast, and even Haman says, Yeshno Amechad, the Gemara says, Yeshen, the Medrash says, Yeshenim and Amitzvahs, they're shluftzik. They're like, they're sleepwalking through, through their mitzvahs, even the ones they do. How can we understand it? Because the Jewish people had themselves begun to subscribe to what was considered a very natural notion. Your relationship is a function of location. And if you're off location, the relationship is basically off. And you may continue to do things from a sentimental point of view, but, but, but it's basically over. The connection is over. So Hashverosh has a feast. Why not? Esther sees this trouble. And she sends a message to Mordechai. Mazev, al mazev, what's it all about? And the Medrash explains that final expression. Al mazev, have they, have they abandoned the luchos, which are mazev, meaning, what's mazev? Mizeh u mizehim ksuvim, that they're written on both sides. Why is that aspect highlighted? Why is that aspect of the luchos being emphasized here, that the luchos were written on both sides? The Gemara in Masech Shabbos and Daf Kuf Gimel, pardon me, Kaf Kuf Dalet, says that the luchos were written on both sides because they're nikra'im bifnim v'nikra'im b'chutz. They're read inside and they're read outside. And the question is, inside where? 
Outside where? But now we know. The answer is inside Eretz Yisrael, which is where the Jewish people should be, and outside Eretz Yisrael, which is where they might find themselves. But they should never think that the luchos, the script, is only facing the inside. And if you're on the outside, there's just a blank stone. And it's all history, with a drop of nostalgia, perhaps. No. The script of the luchos is on both sides. Nikroim bifnim v'nikroim b'chutz. And that's why Esther says maybe they've abandoned the mizeh or mizeh factor of the luchos. They let themselves go because they forgot that the luchos are to be read on the outside also. Could it be? That's Esther's question. And what is Mordechai's answer? Vayaget la Mordechai es kolashev karahu. Mordechai says karahu's back. How does that answer anything that Esther asked him? Says the Fika Yehuda, it actually answers everything. If karahu is back, it's because you're right. They abandoned mizeh u mizeh. And in order to understand how that is, we need to ask probably one of the most uh, disarming questions that we could about Purim. Namely, what is Haman doing in the Purim story? So, of course, our instinctive response is, well, it just wouldn't be the same without him. I mean, we need a villain, and he, he's the one. What exactly, what's the meaning behind the question? The meaning behind the question is as follows. We have a concept that, that we have been going through four exiles. Our nations have gone through four exiles. Okay, the first is Babylon under the Bukhadnezar. The second is Persia, right? We didn't change location, but management changed, so to speak, and therefore <coughs> Persia took over as the hosts, uh, quote-unquote, of the exile. The third is the Greek exile, which took place while we were in the land of Israel. And the fourth is Rome. And, and the Gaulus of Rome, of Gaulus Edom, what's called, is always associated with Asaph. So this now leads to a very interesting question. Haman, Ha'agagi, is a descendant of Amalek. Amalek is a grandson of Asaph. Asaph's Gaulus is Gaulus number four. We're currently in Gaulus number two. So that's very interesting, because the most, our most significant uh, adversary is not a natural inhabitant of that Golos. It's certainly not a natural representative of that, of that Golos. It kind of sounds like Haman basically barged into someone else's Golos, which is actually quite rude. And although we're not, I don't think we're meant to feel sad for Achashverosh because he himself was a Russia, but he's also a bit of a shlemazel because it turns out that he can't even host his own gollus. He, he gets pushed to the side of his own gollus. He's like the king of Persia, but no one really cares about him because Haman's moved in. That's really the background to the question. And which means, by the way, that the story of Purim is really a story, in a sense, of a gollus within a gollus. Because the backdrop is the Persian exile, but then it's spearheaded by someone from another exile. Which is an incredible situation. And the Maharal, in a Sefer or Chadash, says that is why the allusion in the Torah to the persecution or, or the problems of, uh, of the Purim story... Esther min What is the illusion of Esther and all that that represents? It says the Pasuk in Parshas Vayelech, 
Haster, Aster, Ponai. Hashem says, I will surely hide my face. Haster, Aster. It's a double expression. Why is it a double expression of Hester? Says the Maharab, because it was a double golos. It was a golos within a golos. You're subject to the, to the plots and designs of Haman, who's from golos Edom, while you're yet in the golos of, of Persia. And that is the background to the question, what is Haman doing in this, in this golos? He's, he's jumped the queue from number four to number two. Who let him in? The answer, the, the, the very difficult answer, but important to appreciate the Purim story, is that we let him in. In other words, and again, the, the, no sympathy to Haman. This is not a defense for him, but we need to understand. We, we don't care as much about our enemies as we, as we do about ourselves when we, when we want to make things right. So we have to know <coughs> that this is how Mordechai is responding to Esther. Esther says, have they abandoned Mizeh or Mizeh? They feel if they're on the outside, they're not connected anymore. Says Mordechai, yes, and that's why Karahu is back, because they feel like they're on the derech. And on the derech, they're nowhere. They're, just, they're, they're not in their location. So, they, so they, they've given up on their connection. Well, if they've given up on their connection, so there's someone's waiting for them who wants to capitalize on that lack of connection, because now they're vulnerable to him. That is how Asher Karahu is a response to Mazeh Ve'al Mazeh. It's a completely different way of looking at the of looking at the the verses in the Megillah. So, so what's the way out for us? What's the path towards salvation? Clearly, it's to correct the mistake that got us into trouble. If that mistake was giving credence to the notion that when we're outside, we're no longer connected to Hashem, not in terms of our responsibilities to Him, and there's no expectations of anything that He will do for us. So how do you rectify such a thing? You've got to realize that wherever you are, you are connected. Or to put it slightly differently, you need to take your cue from Yosef. Just as all those years ago, Yosef said, all those centuries ago, Yosef said, I'm in Egypt. It doesn't get more off location than Egypt. I'm not in the land of Israel currently, but I'm still a Yerealokim. My connection has not been switched off. So the Jewish people needed to take their cue from Yosef. He's their role model in this regard. They say, we're currently not in the land of Israel, but we're not off. And by the way, aside from anything else, if you ever want to get back, you need to keep yourselves in play. And therefore, they took the, Yosef. That's why we say that Yosef is the man behind the Purim story. And that is why I said before that when we go back to the Mase Avos, of the Purim story, which is, which is the garments that were given to Binyamin, focus not only on the receiver of the garments, who's Binyamin, ancestor of Mordechai, but focus also on the giver of the garments, the bestower of the garments. It's Yosef, because part of the Purim story in the end, will Yosef will continue to be giving the tools for salvation. You, ca- you take up Yosef's call of Esol Kimani Yareh, wherever you are, and with that, you will... You'll find your way back. You'll find your connection to Hashem wherever you are and ultimately enable yourself to find your way back. What is it about Yosef that that, that allows him to stay connected wherever he is? The thing about Yosef is that 
we see that he is driven from the inside. In other words, what's right and wrong for him is not an issue of environment. It's an issue of the values that he knows to be true. And that is how he's able to withstand uh, in a society like Mitzrayim and in a household like Potiphar with Potiphar's wife, where everything environmental and atmospheric should, if, if, if his behavior is just a response to atmosphere, which often can be, so then atmosphere changes, behavior changes. But if his behavior is not, is not a response to what's happening from the outside, but what he knows to be true from the inside, it stays constant wherever he is. Or to put it slightly differently, the reason why Yosef was able to, ma- to, to maintain his standards as he moved from inside to outside is a product of that which was inside of him. When a person goes from the inside to the outside, all that stays with them is that which is inside of them. And on Purim, we celebrate the fact that every Jew has something like that inside of him. That is why we say the famous statement, that it's famous by the Arizal, it's, it's earlier still, that Yom Kippurim and, and, and Purim are very similar to each other. They are not similar in how they are observed, which is just as well, but they are Focusing on the same concept, the something inside the Jew that's always connected. That's where Kapara comes from. And that's where the salvation of Purim came from. And this is why Purim is a day that faces not only backwards to, 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 to thank Hashem for saving us then, but it faces forwards because the very same reality of the Jewish people continues to this day. And what Purim teaches us about what we can hope to expect in the future is also worthy of celebration. And that's why we say, Tikvasam in Shoshanas Yaakov, Chiwasam Eisalanetzach, it was eternal salvation, because Tikvasam Bechol Dorvador, there's no generation that can say, oh, well, we're off, or we're too far, or too detached, or too removed. No one will feel more removed than the Jewish people did in, in, in that first time. And the whole of the miracle of Purim is to school them to school us to remember that we're never too far away. And when the time comes, all we need to do is maintain and develop the connection that we have with Hashem wherever we are. And then Tikvasam Nechol Dovador, Purim, and, and, and indeed the, the, the famous statement of Chazal, the Purim will not, be, will not be discontinued in the future because it's, it's the message of Purim that actually allows the future to happen as long as we heed it and celebrate it. And this year, Metz Hashem, should be a decisive step and the celebration on Purim should itself be a decisive statement and a chizuk for the year ahead, taking us forward to the ultimate geula, simchas olam al rosham, which should come in Meheri Amenu Amen. We wish you all a happy Purim, and we'll meet again in Mitzvah Hashem in two weeks' time. Excellent. Thank you very much.